almost missed my cue there. I got caught up in the worship. I was enjoying it. And, uh, uh, and you guys finally woke up there about uh, halfway through the worship time. Uh, there, there was a time there where I thought, okay, is anybody in this room? Because yeah, it was so quiet. Yeah, and then all of a sudden we got on the, the, the Hotkreuz song and boy, you guys really warmed up there, which is a great song. I don't know exactly everything it said, but I have some good ideas there. Uh, and uh, if you ever see me singing along, I just sing along. I, I, in various cultures around the world, as long as it's in a, a Roman script, I do my best to try to sing the song and, and pronounce it the best I can. I, I admit that uh, with, uh, with Afrikaans and also with Dutch, I have a hard time getting the in there at the right time while you're singing. You know, when I, I can talk that way, but getting the, the song in there. But uh, thank, thanks for warming up there and, and thanks for worshiping the Lord. Uh, it was really, really quite fun. So that's great. Hey, if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Now, if you were here last week, you'll, uh, you'll say, oh, wow, didn't he read from Colossians chapter 3 last week? And uh, yes, I did. And uh, I'll read from Colossians chapter 3 next week as well. Uh, as I was praying about uh, these three Sundays, getting, uh, getting to inflict uh, myself on you for three weeks, I was praying about it, and I really felt uh, led very strongly here to Colossians chapter 3, and uh, needing to pray uh, through this, uh, the, at least the first half of this chapter, uh, one section at a time. And so that's what we'll be doing together uh, today and next week as well. So... I'll start reading with verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you once walked and when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. May God bless to us this reading from his holy word. Well, I'm assuming most of you here have cars. Uh, because uh, some of you, from time to time, have the temerity to take my parking space uh, <laughs> uh, so that I have to park around the corner. And uh, uh, it, unless you live in central London, you probably don't get that quite as intensely. Uh, I know some of you are, are kind of out on the outskirts, and uh, you may have uh, actually a, a drive, uh, a, a place to park your car off the street or a garage, uh, this kind of thing. But you know, where I live, uh, just about a mile or so away from here, um, we, we have to park on the street. We don't have that luxury. And, uh, and thankfully, I have my parking spot right out in front of my house. The problem is that most of my neighbors don't realize it's mine. Uh, and I find myself getting very irritable about my parking spot. Like recently, there's a new truck on the street. 
you know, one of those little ugly things. Uh, and uh, it, it's probably driven by sissies, uh, that, that kind of thing. And it has the temerity to park in my spot and stay there for a week. You know, I don't mind if someone parks there for like an hour or so and then they leave and then I can pop in, but he'll park there. And so I find myself getting really, really irritable about my spot. Uh, you know, thinking like, well, I could let the air out of his tires. Uh, probably putting sugar in his petrol would be a little too intense. Uh, or then there's, then there's the, the other neighbor uh, who has this really little car and they have no idea how to park it. And so sometimes they take up two spots. Uh, and, and it gets me really intense. So we, we've taken, they, they've got a couple of daughters. Actually, it's a beautiful family. So we're starting to buy them presents. And we've noticed that they're parking a little bit better now. So it's a, it's a happy thing. But, you know, we, can, we guys, we can get intense about this thing, right? Like I remember when uh, back in 2005, we were down in South Africa. I uh, had a, a great, great time down there. We were driving from uh, Johannesburg down to Cape Town. Uh, is that the N9? Uh, do I N1, okay, N1. I, I, I couldn't remember, it was the, the end part or the, the number part I was getting wrong. So the N1, we're driving down the N1. I love the N1, you know, that great four-lane motorway that's actually only two lanes. Uh, and, uh, and so I was going down there, and fortunately Karen would be asleep in the back seat. Uh, that's the best place for my wife to be when I'm driving like this. Uh, and uh, Yaku that I, that I was with, it was his car I was driving. He was asleep much of the time, so that was quite good. And so you'd be you'd sailing down there, and these people were just going so slow. You know, doesn't that drive you crazy? You know, so I'd drive past them, you know, I'd, I'd overtake them, and I'd say, buy a donkey! <laughs> you know, and they thought I was thanking them. And I was actually telling them to buy a jackass because it'd probably go faster than their car was going, you know, ride it. Uh, that's, uh, you know, that's, hey, we can get it really, really aggressive. And, you know, is this resonating with any of you guys? No, it's resonating with a lot of you women, I know. That's, that's right. <laughs> you know, my wife and I, we have a covenant now. Uh, she can say anything to me while I'm driving as long as she uses words. Uh, it used to be that, that I'd be driving along and she'd go, ah! and, and I'd say, what, what? That's such a beautiful sunset. <laughs> what is that? You know, or we'd be driving along and, ah! what's that? Well, you almost hit that pedestrian. Oh, okay. So I said, okay, you can say anything you want as long as you use words. You know, words are helpful. So, uh, you know, and it's really been great for our marriage. It's really helped us out a lot. And, uh, and I can always tell when I'm getting really, really intense about these things that probably my sanctification is going down and down and down and down. And I just want to encourage you because uh, we all get that way from time to time. And, uh, and it always calls me back. I start thinking, you know, as a child of the resurrection, I really shouldn't be thinking such awful thoughts. And I, I really shouldn't be struggling quite as much as I am with this kind of thing. And so I, I come back again to what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross and also in the empty tomb. And I'm reminded here of what Paul is talking about uh, today. Because he talked last week as we looked, he said, listen, if, if you've been raised with Christ, you have a responsibility 
If you have been saved by God's grace through faith, you have a responsibility. You have a knowledge. You have a, a, a relationship that makes demands on you. Just like as soon as I got married, that relationship made demands on me. It determined things that I can do, and it determined things that I can't do. And if I want to have a healthy relationship, then I need to listen to those demands. It's not that my wife says, you must do this and you must not do this. You know, my wife has never told me that I must not have an affair. But I know that I should not have an affair. And, and God help me, I never will have an affair. I've told God I'd rather him kill me than have an affair. Uh, because I figure him killing me would be a lot easier than my wife killing me. Uh, but uh, but you, just, you, you just know that you're in a relationship, and so that relationship is starting to make demands on you. You have this knowledge of uh, a crucified, resurrected Savior who has drawn you into his family, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who has made you a son, an heir of the promise, who has made you a saint. And having that knowledge makes demands on us, makes demands on us. And what Paul told us last week in the first part of Colossians, he said that we need to orient our wills and orient our minds toward Jesus Christ, the crucified, resurrected Lord. That uh, that is the key demand that is being made of us by the reality of the resurrection. That we need to orient our, our minds and our wills, our choices and our thoughts toward the resurrected Jesus Christ. And then Paul goes on today to talk to me and probably some of you about the next demand, in a sense, that needs to happen here. And as that is killing things. We need to put to death something, according to Paul here. He says, um, whoops, I, there we go, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So what do we need to do? What is this put to death? Well, the way the Greeks understood death is that if there was no longer a soul that is mind, will, and emotion, then whatever it was was dead. The person was dead. So a person who, who no longer had mind, will, or emotions was dead. And death was the absence of a soul, the absence of mind, will, and emotion. And that was uh, central to the Greeks' understanding of this idea of death. Then when we look at that, we can easily begin to apply that to what Paul is saying here. So for Paul, putting to death something in us doesn't mean that we're you know, stabbing ourselves, uh, doesn't mean that we're cutting ourselves, doesn't mean that we're depriving ourselves. It means that we will no longer invest our mind, our will, or our emotions in something. We will no longer invest our mind, our will, and our emotions in something. That's what putting to death is all about. If it has the absence of our mind, our will, and our emotions, then it's been put to death inside of us. And so we have to put things to death. Put things to death. Put the things that are earthly within us to death. So for me, when I'm looking at my neighbor that has taken up two spots uh, as usual, uh, so that I can't really fit in there, uh, I have an option. I can start to invest my mind, my will, and my emotions in that, what's just happened, or I can redirect it. 
and say, it's not worth my time. It's not worth any of my mind, my will, or my emotions to think about it. Now that's tough sometimes when every time I look out my window, I see the way the car's parked. And you feel like that comes up inside of you again, but you say, no, I'm not going to invest my mind, my will, or my emotions in this thing. I am not going to give it some thought. I am not going to allow it to inflame my emotions, to allow things to rise up within me. I am not going to make choices based on this reality. I am putting it to death. And so Paul says that we need to put to death anything that is earthly in us. We need to put to death anything that is oriented solely toward the earth, solely toward this reality. Now, we might think, well, that, that sounds like everything, but it's not really. Because most of what we encounter in our day-to-day -day lives uh, does not have to be just earthly. It actually can be seen as a gift from God. For instance, marriage. Now, we might think that the nitty-gritty day-to-day relating in, in, in the context of marriage is an earthly thing, but actually Paul says it's a heavenly thing, that marriage is the picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. And so we can understand that as we are interacting with our spouse in marriage and as our, our spouse is absolutely driving us crazy, that uh, that's not really an earthly thing, that God has a purpose, a heavenly purpose in that relationship. And that purpose is in part to refine us, to change us, to make us better people. I know that I am a better man today because of the woman that I married 28 years ago. And that is the reality that God wants to build within us. Or what about work? Now we can often see work simply as something that's just an earthly reality. But actually work, according to Ecclesiastes, is a gift from God. God has given us work and God has designed us for work so that we can bring resources into our lives, so that we can eat, drink, and be merry. Uh, so that we also will have something to invest into the lives of others so we can bless other people, and so that we will create wealth and a stable society that will cause all the people around us to prosper and to benefit from that. And actually, when we understand the heavenly purposes around work and how work can be used to advance God's kingdom, we can see that work is not an earthly thing, but it actually is a heavenly thing. But there are some things that are earthly. There are some things that have no part in the heavenly places. There are some things that you will not encounter in the kingdom of God. There are some things that you cannot see if you're genuinely praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's those things that Paul is talking to us about. And so he begins to list some of these things. And he says here, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. One of the big ones is sexual immorality. Now, by sexual immorality, Paul is talking about the whole panoply of sexual sin, from uh, adultery uh, to pornography to homosexuality, uh, and, and everything in between comes under the rubric of sexual immorality. It is all sex that is not explicitly sanctioned by God within the covenant of marriage. 
And sexual immorality is one of the biggest corruptions in our world today. Uh, Mike Bickle of uh, the International House of Prayer in Kansas City calls it a demonically energized perversion in our world. And it is. It is. And you'll find this toward the top of Paul's list of things to put to death almost every single time. And it's there because it is so devaluing, it is so devastating, it is so corrupting for the world around us. And I could spend lots of time on that, but I won't. Uh, just uh, hopefully you can see that and understand that. So there's that sexual immorality. And then we also to put to death impurity. Impurity. And this is related to the sexual immorality. You might say that the sexual immorality, in a sense, is the outward expression and impurity is the inward expression. All these impure thoughts and uh, the fantasies and daydreamings that we can come up with. And we often try to think that this is the purview of men, but actually uh, as many women are as guilty of this as men, uh, it's just uh, how they engage in it. Many women tend to engage through fantasy and uh, through romance novels and the thing, where, where men tend to engage more through uh, film and, and images and, and those kinds of things. But any of this kind of impurity in us must be put to death because it is so corrupting. It is so corrupting in our lives. Uh, then he says passion. Now passion is a tricky word here because passion can either be good or it can be bad. Uh, and obviously, since it's in a list of things to put to death, in this context, it is a bad thing. Uh, and, uh, and by passion, uh, the, kind of the idea behind passion is the idea of suffering. Uh, often, Jesus' death on the cross is called the passion of the Christ. And actually, the Bible uses the same word passion uh, for Jesus' death on the cross as Paul is using here. Uh, so in this kind of context, Paul is talking about those kinds of things that we're agonizing over that are ungodly. The things we agonize over that really aren't from the Lord. Like when I am agonizing over people parking in my spot, that is an ungodly passion. Or sometimes we agonize over people in our workplace and uh, maybe people that have hurt us and, uh, and we, we want to get back at them in some, in some way, shape, or form. Or we agonize over the injustice that is around us and we focus in on that and it makes us resentful and frustrated and bitter and angry and all those kinds of feelings. That's how you know when you're engaging in this ungodly passion. So it's anything like that that's driving you forward, that's starting to control you, that is an ungodly passion here, according to Paul. And then he mentions evil desire. Now again, desire can be both good and bad. When I uh, first dated uh, Karen, my wife, I had a, a holy desire for her, which caused me to pursue her. You can have a holy desire for the glory of God. In fact, God wants us to have that desire. Uh, and it can be a, a joyful desire and, and a, a satisfying desire to see God's glory. But Paul here is talking about an evil desire. This is where we focus our eyes on something and it starts to consume us and we start to go after it. It can be anything from uh, a new iPad uh, to a new car to a new house 
to a new job. The key dynamic here is something that starts to consume us. It starts to take our mind and our energy and our will and our emotions. All of this stuff starts getting wrapped up in it and it's not God and it's not centered on God. You know, God's not opposed to a new car. He's not opposed to a new job. But when these kinds of things become all-consuming for us, they become evil desires. And Paul said that we need to put to death these evil desires. And he goes on and he says the last thing, covetousness. And covetousness is when you desire stuff. And one of the, the things that I really dislike the most about my culture and my background. I mean, many of you guess that uh, my accent is not from East London. Um, and uh, and it, it's, the exp it's the exportation of consumerism. Uh, I believe that consumerism is one of those things that's wrapped up in this evil desire and covetousness. This spurring on to buy more and more and more things. As if we have the latest iPad or the latest washing machine or the latest uh, food or whatever the latest is that somehow we'll feel better about ourselves, somehow that we'll have a higher sense of self-worth. And our culture, and now it's not just the United States, but it's all throughout the West. Uh, it's contaminated everything. Our culture is communicating time and time again that if we only buy, then we'll feel better. I consume, therefore I am. And then if we only have more consumption in our society, then our society is going to be better off and everybody's going to prosper and everybody's going to get better. The problem is that if you consume and consume and consume and consume, eventually everything is consumed. We live in a finite universe with an infinite God, but it's a finite universe and you can't continually consume. And that's not what God's created us for. And consumption and consumerism is driven by covetousness. It will not work unless people covet more and more and more and more. The riots of a couple of years ago were driven by covetousness, which is a form of idol worship. Because in the end, covetousness makes us believe the lie that if we only get what we covet, then we will feel better, then we will be better, then our lives will improve, then we will have what we really need uh, and this covetousness is ultimately consuming and destroying. And how many families have been destroyed by consumer debt? How many people are losing their homes because they were encouraged to consume more than they could afford? How many governments like Cyprus are having troubles all because of covetousness and consumption? And so Paul tells us here, he says, listen, you need to put to death these things. You need to stop giving them your mind, your will, and your emotions. You need to step away from it. Because on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Now, we often struggle to, with this idea that God has this wrath, and, and, uh, and the word wrath, we, we want to soften it up, you know. But we can't soften it up because it really means wrath. Uh, the reason why we struggle with it is twofold. One, because our human wrath is always sinful. Only God can be wrathful in a perfect way because God is perfect. And the second reason why we struggle with this is because wrath seems to be inconsistent with the concept of love. 
But actually, if you look at it more closely, wrath is an expression of love because God's wrath is directed against everything that hinders love. God's wrath is directed at everything that hinders love, at everything that wants to interfere with love. I'm generally a, a well-mannered, uh, a mild-mannered kind of guy. Maybe not well-mannered, I don't know. It depends on who you talk to. But a mild-mannered kind of guy. But there's one way that you can get me really, really angry. And like the Hulk, you know, that you don't want to see me angry. And that's if you mess with my wife. Now, I don't care if you're bigger than I am, and few people are, uh, or smaller than I am, uh, if you mess with my wife, you're in trouble. Because my wrath will come out at anything that interferes with that love. And that's the way God is multiplied billions of time at times and perfectly. You know, so because of these kinds of things, the wrath of God is coming. And God will not allow these things to go on in your life if you're his child because these things will hinder love. They will hinder your love for him. They will hinder your love for other people. And so we need to put these things to death. So he goes on and says, but now you must put them all away. All away. And then he goes on to talk about some of the manifestations of these things. How do you know if some of these things are coming up inside of your life? How do you know if there's something there earthly that you need to put to death? Well, here's some, here's some signs. Anger. Anger is a big sign of this. If you find yourself angry all the time and frustrated all the time, then something at earthly within you needs to be put to death. And then wrath. Wrath is an extension of anger. Wrath, anger can largely be internal. Wrath is when we start to express that internal anger. And we start to do something about it. And then malice. Malice is when we want to harm someone else. In the end, where I know that, uh, that my heart is being sinful toward that other ugly little truck that parks in my spot, uh, is when I want to harm the truck. That's ungodly. It's sinful. And I have to say, God, oh, I'm sorry. Then I park someplace else, you know, and just stay there for a week, just to discipline myself away from this. Because it's, it's, it's ugly. It's ungodly. It might be funny in a sermon, but it's certainly not funny when I'm there thinking it and, and everything. Uh, and that's malice. And we've got to get rid of that. You've got to put it away. Put it away. Don't give it any, any time at all. And then he goes on to slander. Slander is when you talk against someone. Even if it's true, if you're talking against someone, you're slandering that person. You're slandering that person. So slander. An obscene talk. Uh, read a great book, uh, well, actually, almost great book, uh, called Unapologetic, um, uh, not too long ago. And uh, it's talking about Christianity and why Christianity still makes uh, emotional sense even in, a, in our world today. Uh, but the writer of the book uses a lot of foul language. He, he's clearly a Christian. I really believe he's a Christian based on his testimony in the book. But I just find it almost impossible to reconcile him being a Christian and the amount of intentional foul language he uses. I mean, all of us guys from time to time, we can let something slip, especially if we hit our hands with a hammer uh, or if one of our kids hit our hands with a hammer. 
but, uh, but to do this intentionally, write it down and publish it, is a very difficult thing for me. And Paul says, no, don't get rid of this obscene talk. Get rid of it. Put it out of your mouth. And while you're at it, don't lie to one another. Don't be dishonest in any way, shape, or form, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And so we are not to tell each other a lie. We are not to deceive one another. All of these things are earthly. And you can tell if you have earthly things alive in you because you will have many of these things coming up to the surface. The anger, the wrath, the malice, the slander, uh, the lying, the, the talk, and so on and so forth. And so he says, listen, don't do any of this. Don't be engaged in this because you've put off the old self. He tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. We are a saint. We are a holy one. We are a child of God. We are a son of God. We are an heir according to the promises. All of these things are ours right now. We've put this on. This is our reality. People know it. And so we need to put off this old self stuff. Get rid of all this old self stuff. And keep this new self on because the new self will be renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And so the way that this new self is being renewed, uh, is being refreshed, is being freshened up, is by getting to know God more and more and more. Oh, the challenge here is that you hear the kinds of things like I'm saying today, and it's very easy to get into this idea that let's come up with a list of do's and don'ts now. I don't do this, I don't swear, I don't get angry. Uh, that's really well nigh on to impossible. Uh, I don't slander, I can do that most of the time. Uh, okay, I'll try to avoid the sexual immorality, you know, I'll try to do all these other things. And as soon as you start thinking about, I'm gonna try to do this, I'm gonna try to do this, I'm gonna try to do this, you lose. The minute you start thinking it, you lose. Just try not to sin. You know, set your mind that you are not going to do anything that displeases God for the next 30 days. I guarantee you, you'll fail. And I guarantee you that the harder you think about it, the harder you try not to do it, the more likely it will be that you do it. Uh, it's a bit like uh, uh, this old hermit used to stir for gold. Uh, he'd stir this pot, and then there's actually a pot of lead, molten lead, and he'd stir it, and every couple of minutes, uh, a lump of gold would fly out of the pot. And many other people came along, and they wanted to stir the pot and stir the pot so they could get the gold. But none of them could stir the pot and get gold. And so finally, one day, someone had, had, had the, uh, the temerity to ask the guy, okay, how does this work? What's the trick? And the hermit said, well, the trick is not to think about gold as you're stirring the pot. And that's the trick here. It's not to think about not committing sin. It's actually to think about God. Because the way that our new self is renewed in the image of our creator is to focus our mind, our will, and our emotions toward God. And that's what Paul is talking about when he says here, there's not a Greek or Jew 
circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. It's not about who you are. It's not about your background. You don't have a leg up on all of this if you happen to be Jewish. Uh, you don't have a happen, happen to have a leg up on this if you happen to be English or South African or American or Chinese or, or any other group. Because actually the key to all of this is Jesus Christ. But Christ is all and in all. So in order to put to death what is earthly within us, we need to be directing our life toward Jesus. Our mind, our will, and our emotions toward Jesus. Investing our life in Jesus. That goes back to what Paul said last week when he said, now our responsibility is to orient our mind and our wills toward Jesus Christ. That's what this is about. That is the key in all of this. It's to allow Jesus to be the focus of our thinking. To allow Jesus to be the focus of our conversation. To seek out how Jesus sees your work. How Jesus sees your community. How Jesus sees your church. How Jesus sees your spouse and your children. What are Christ's hope for your kids? Not just your hope for your kids. What are the good works that God has prepared in advance for you to do in the workplace? According to Ephesians chapter 2. What are these things? Allow Jesus to fill your thoughts and to fill your mind and to fill your imagination more and more and more and more and more. As you're watching the television and you see something that would displease the Lord, speak it out. Uh, Karen and I, we watch TV from time to time. It's uh, one of the pastimes we enjoy doing together. And there's so much on the television that is just so ungodly. So we scream at the TV. And we say, don't do that! That's stupid! She's married! That's not what God wants! Oh, if you only knew what God would like you to do here, you would, it'd be so much better. You idiots, stop sinning! Uh, but the thing about that is that not only is it engaging television, but also it engages our minds with Jesus even when we're doing passive kinds of things. And the more we focus on Jesus, the more Jesus becomes the object of our imagination, the focus of our mind, our will, and our emotions, the more we find that these things are put to death in us because there's no room for the anger and the wrath and the malice. And we naturally start doing the things that please Jesus because we're focused in on him. And this works in every area of our life. I know when I go to a restaurant, there are certain things that, that I like to eat. Uh, one thing that you'll never find me, almost never find me ordering at a restaurant is anything with mushrooms in it. I believe in meat. I don't go to vegetarian restaurants. I hope none of you are vegetarians. If so, we have ministry for that later. Uh, no, I, I can only say this in a South African group, you know. <laughs> I've had a braai. I know what it's like. But, uh, uh, but I found myself, if I'm going to a restaurant with a... Because Karen loves mushrooms. 
And uh, every t chance she gets, she goes to a restaurant and she'll get mushrooms, she'll get rice, you know, this kind of things. And I find the weirdest thing happens that when I go to a restaurant without Karen, I tend to order things with mushrooms in it. And it just happens rather naturally. And it's only later that I reflect, you know, that's the dish that Karen would have ordered if she had been here. Next time I need to go for the meat. Or actually, next time I need to go and take Karen with me so I can get what I really want. But I think the same thing works around Jesus. The more we think of him, the more we focus on him, the more we gather together with his people to worship him, the more we naturally make the choices that he wants us to make. And the easier it is to put to death everything that is earthly within us so that the resurrection life of Jesus can come forth in us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this reality, the reality of Jesus. Thank you that in our focus on Jesus, our love for Jesus, that all of these things will die in us. All of these things will be set aside. Lord, I pray that you'd fill our heart, fill our mind, fill our wills more and more with Jesus so that, as the Apostle Paul says, Christ is in all and over all. All that we do, all that we say, all that we think, let Jesus Christ reign in us so the resurrection life of Jesus will flow through us to the glory of the Father and the power of the Spirit. We thank you, praise you, and honor you, and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.